you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Five hundred years ago this week, a Catholic priest named Martin Luther nailed a document called the 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. When he was doing this, Martin Luther did not intend to set the world on fire. He only wanted to debate some abuses that were taking place in the Roman Catholic Church. He posted them so that hopefully there could be a conversation and so that there would be some reform taking place in the church. But in God's providence, as Luther struck the nail through the paper and into the wooden door of the church at, Wh at Wittenberg with his metal hammer, the sparks that flew into the haybed of Roman Catholicism set the world on fire. And the flames of the gospel have been roaring ever since. The document that Luther nailed to the door of the church at Wittenberg was a theological train wreck. Luther was onto something, even though he hadn't really figured it all out. He spent enough time studying the scriptures to look around at the church and say, I don't know how to fix this, but I know that something is wrong. He hadn't peeled back all the layers of the onion. But he was beginning to do that. The very first theses of the 95 theses was probably the best one, and it reads like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed, or it was his desire, that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard Russell Berger read about indulgences. An indulgence is something that the Roman Catholic Church used to sell and still sells today that says that if you pay X amount of money, your relative will not have to spend as much time in purgatory. Maybe you don't know what purgatory is. Purgatory is a Catholic myth that says that after Christians die, they have to go to some intermediate place where they suffer enough to be forgiven of certain sins that they died with before they can go to heaven. It's radically unbiblical. And so an indulgence was, if you give us X amount of dollars, your Aunt Bernice will not have to spend 50 years in purgatory. She'll only have to spend 25. But if you give us X amount of dollars more, well, then maybe she won't have to spend any time in purgatory at all. It was these abuses in particular that Luther wanted to debate when he posted the 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. Now, he saw that this practice was not from God, but from man. To be clear, Martin Luther was not actually opposing indulgences in this article. He actually was still in favor of indulgences, and he was actually in favor of the Pope. He wasn't quite out of the darkness yet, but he was beginning to make sense of things. But one of the things that he was saying was this. Indulgences are a tradition of the church, not a command of God. And he was right. It was a tradition of the church. So as Luther is 
putting the pieces of the puzzle together in his life, we see that later he comes to reject indulgences entirely. And he also rejects the office of the Pope outright. It just took him a little while to get there. Considering the fact that he grew up in the seedbed of Roman Catholicism, we should be impressed that he got anywhere at all. The reason why I'm using this as my introduction is because I think the heart of Luther's critique is the heart of what Jesus is critiquing today in the text of Mark 7. Jesus is critiquing the abuse of human authority and tradition, putting it on the same level, the same plane as God's authority. So let's read the text together for ourselves. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Earlier in the book of Mark, we saw that some scribes had come down from Jerusalem to attack Jesus. Well, those same scribes are back in today's verse. Look at verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, so we have the same team of scribes who had come down with a specific mission to investigate and to accuse Jesus, they're back again. And this time, they've teamed up with the Pharisees. Their strength in numbers. And this time, they're here to confront Jesus about hand-washing. If you want to know what all the fuss about hand-washing is all about, you don't have to wonder, because Mark tells us. In verses 3 and 4, we see what is essentially a little commentary by Mark, where he explains the hand-washing situation to his readers. You see, Mark was writing to Gentiles, people who didn't come from Jewish backgrounds. Likely, he was writing to the church in Rome, which was full of Gentiles. So he knows that as he tells the story about Jesus' controversy over hand-washing, that in all likelihood, his readers won't really know what he's talking about. So he stops and says, hey, let me explain this to you. And he says, yeah, basically the Jews had a custom, a tradition of washing their hands and even of pots and pans and certain couches. And all of this was meant to just be ritualistic. It was a symbol of cleanliness that was supposed to represent spiritual realities. But it wasn't a command of God. It was only a tradition. 
It was a tradition that had arisen in the life of Israel over a course of several centuries. I appreciate the way that Mark recognizes that his hearers may not understand what's going on, so he pauses to give them some background information. So, in the spirit of Mark, I want to pause and give us a little bit of background information to explain how this hand-washing tradition came to be. It can all be traced back to the Jews, God's chosen people, yet a very sinful people. The Jews were God's elect. But even though they were God's elect, they were a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. If they could have unelected themselves, they would have done it a million times over. And the Lord only preserved them and kept them for the glory of His own name, as we read this morning in Sunday school. Looking at the cycle or the life cycle of Israel, the Jews with God, is kind of like looking at an unhealthy relationship, where a man and a woman are together, and they fight, and then they make up, and then they fight, and then they eat, and then they make up, and then they go to sleep, and then they wake up, and then they fight. And it's just this endless cycle. Well, with Israel and the Lord, it was like that. God graciously called them to himself. He redeemed them. They sinned. And then God would graciously forgive them and restore them, and then they would sin again. And then God would punish them, and then they would repent, and he would restore them, and then they would sin again. It was just this nonstop cycle of sin and grace. Well, towards the end of this long cycle in the life of Israel, some people, some lay people, got really tired of God's judgment coming down on Israel for their unholy ways. And so they banded together and they said, this is it. We're not going to let this happen again. We're going to make sure that we stay holy. You know those people today as Pharisees. And by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, these Pharisees had developed a very elaborate system of trying to preserve holiness in the land of Israel. Pretty soon it wasn't enough that the priests had to bathe themselves once a year to show ritual purity. Now all of the people had to wash their hands and do different bathing rituals to show that they were clean as well. Pretty soon it wasn't enough that you not work on the Sabbath. Now you can't work within a couple hours of the Sabbath because you might accidentally work over into the Sabbath if you're not careful. What this group was trying to do was build a fence around God's law. Not only did they not want anyone to break God's law, but they didn't want anyone to come even within a hundred feet of breaking God's law. And that seems like a good idea, right? It seems like a good goal. If you don't want to get burned, you stay away from the, as far away from the fire as possible. So if sin is the fire in the middle, God's law is the fence around it, these guys said, we're going to build a fence around God's fence. There has to be a fence to protect us from the fence that protects us from the sin. And while the pursuit of holiness is excellent, and the sentiment of trying to stay as far away from sin as possible is a good sentiment, one that I hope all of us share in. The application of this principle was a complete and utter failure. What was initially a desire for holiness turned into a codified system of laws and traditions that people began to tout as authoritative as God's law itself. 
This system of law became known as the traditions of the elders. Pretty soon, the words God has said turned into, well, the elders have said. And this tradition is what the scribes and the Pharisees reference when they confront Jesus in verse 5. We read, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? So when the scribes and the Pharisees confront Jesus, they're not confronting Jesus saying, you're disobeying God's law, and you're leading your disciples to disobey God's law. What they're saying is, didn't you see my fence? I put a fence there. You're violating our traditions. Our fence is just as important as God's fence, and you're not acting like it. But there's more than that. The scribes and the Pharisees are confronting Jesus in a roundabout sort of way. It's passive-aggressive. Rather than speaking plainly, they kind of thinly veil their criticism with a question. They say, why don't your disciples obey the traditions of the elders? But this veiled criticism doesn't fly with Jesus. He sees it for what it is, and he knows that they are accusing him. Not only are they accusing him of violating God's law, but they're also saying he's a bad rabbi. If your disciples aren't doing it, then you must be at fault, rabbi. As you can imagine, Jesus is none too pleased with these sorts of accusations. His response is swift and severe. He counters their passive-aggressive attacks with a plain-spoken, sharp critique and rebuke. Look at verses 6 and 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Kids, kids, children in the congregation, listen for just a minute. Patience, Campbell, Barrett, Micah, Cohen, Isley, all the DeRocher children, all the many children, Joey's daughter, everybody, kids, listen. I'm going to explain to you what a hypocrite is, okay? You know how on Halloween people dress up? They go around perhaps wearing a mask trying to look like someone else? Well, that's what a hypocrite is. Imagine that you never take your mask off. Imagine that you always go around pretending to be someone else. So... Micah, instead of being Micah, you're walking around with a Superman mask. You're trying to convince everyone that you're Superman. Campbell, you're walking around with a Superwoman mask. You're always trying to convince everyone that you're Superwoman. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. It's when you walk around with a mask on all the time, and you're always trying to convince everyone that you're someone that you really aren't. And Jesus says that we can be like that spiritually. He says that we can walk around with our masks on, that we can always have on a mask trying to pretend to be someone that we're not, trying to be more holy than we are. It's all just a big game. It's just pretend. And kids, listen. If you grow up in the church, you will probably have people try to tell you to put a mask on. You will probably have people try to tell you to do certain things and say certain things because it looks good, because it sounds good because it's part of people's traditions, not because it comes from God. And if you grow up in the life of the church, you may grow up feeling like you have to pretend to be someone that you're not. You may have to 
say and do certain things because you feel pressure from people, and you're going to think that God's happy with you because you say and do things that some of the adults in the church tell you to say and do. But kids, Jesus is not happy if you pretend to love him. He's not happy when we act like hypocrites, when we walk around with masks on. It's okay to be who you are, even if you're not perfect. And you should certainly obey your parents when they tell you the sorts of things that you should do. But you should also read your Bibles. Patience, Campbell, Barrett, Cohen, Micah, Isaac, all the DeRocher kids. Read your Bible. And as you grow up, compare what the adults in this church and even your parents tell you to what God has already told you in your word, in his word. And cling to the good things that they teach you and reject the things that they teach you that doesn't align with God's word. Hopefully in this church we will be faithful as parents and as adults to not lead our children astray. In our church covenant we promise to, to, to raise up any as may be under our care at any time. And one of the ways that we raise them well is that we don't raise them up to do the sorts of things that we think are good just because we feel like they're good. We don't raise them up in our traditions or with our politics or with our opinions. We raise them up with God's word. And we let his word be authoritative. All right, kids. You can go back to drawing. Adults, it's your turn. Come back to me. Jesus is not simply upset that the religious leaders are promoting their own traditions. He's upset because the way that they promote their own traditions undermines the word of God. Traditions are not bad. But the way that traditions are used can be terribly sinful. It's not just that the religious leaders have created a fence for themselves, but that they've actually created a fence that prevents people from accessing the other fence, the fence of God's law. It's as if the fence of tradition is so big and so tall that you can't even see over it to see the fence of God's law. Okay, so outside of this whole weird hand-washing controversy, which we don't really deal with today. What does it look like for someone to build a fence around God's law? To do the sorts of things that we see the religious leaders doing here today? Well, once again, you don't have to wonder, because Jesus loves you, and he gives you an example. He gives the religious leaders an example. He starts talking about Corbin. Now, I know that you guys are like, what is Corbin? Don't worry, I'm going to explain it. Corbin was a system that allowed people to donate to the temple. You could don donate money, you could donate animals, you could donate your slaves, you could donate your land. And when you would donate it to the temple, it was your way of dedicating it to the Lord in the same way that when you give to this church, you're giving to the Lord. But when you declared something Corbin, you could still use it in the meantime. So if you had two acres of land that you wanted to give to the temple, you could go before the priest and before the temple, and you could say, I declare these two acres Corbin. The priest would say, ah, oh, very good, very solemn. Yes, now these two acres will be my two acres, you know, or the, the temple's two acres when you pass. But you could still continue to use your land in the meantime. It's kind of like setting money aside in an account for your children, in a trust, but you can still access the interest until you pass. That's kind of what was going on with Corbin. And this tradition wasn't a bad one. But it was being used in a way that was bad. You see, Jesus says, Moses commanded you to take care of your mother and your father. But you say that you can't because you've 
committed yourself in an oath for some tradition that God never commanded you to do in the first place. When your parents are in need, you say, ah, I would, but my hands are tied. I've already declared my resources Corbin. And Jesus says, your hands aren't tied. Your hands aren't tied. And if your hands are tied, you tied them yourself. God never told you to declare that Corbin. He never commanded that in his word. That's just a tradition that you chose to partake in. But God did command you to care for your parents. And so now you're setting aside the commands of God to uphold some tradition. And you make it sound holy. You say, oh, I committed a promise. I made a promise. I can't break my promise. You can break your promise. Because God never commanded you to make that promise in the first place. Break the promise that you made that God didn't command you to make so that you can obey the command that God commanded you to do. That's what Jesus is saying. One ancient Jewish scholar, T.W. Manson, he describes Corbin and how it functioned in the time of Jesus like this. A man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, that is, declaring a Corbin, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. In response to this tra tradition, Jesus is saying, you don't have to do that. That's just a tradition, but you do need to be obedient to God. But because of the way you've exalted this tradition, you have made the word of God null and void. And so in verse 13, Jesus says just that. He says, the word of God void by your tradition that you have handed down. And then Jesus says this, and many such things you do. Which is Jesus' way of saying, hey, Corbin is just one example of, of a thousand, right? There's endless examples of the way that you exalt your traditions over and above the clear commands of God. Corbin is just one of them. I hope you see the wisdom of what Jesus is doing here with these religious leaders. You see, Pharisees and legalists, they always want to make it about rule following. They want to make it about the letter of the law. They want to make it about do this and don't do that. And Jesus is not going to allow them to do that. He's, he's not going to get involved in a debate with them about hand washing. He says, forget the hand washing. Let's go down to the heart level. At the heart level, what we have here is an issue where you do not want to submit to God's word. You want to be in control, and you want people to respect your authority more than God's authority. Parents, we need to be especially careful here. Future parents, if you don't have kids, don't tune out. This is important for you, too. It's so easy for us, for me, to fall into the trap of saying, because I told you so, that's why. And I think it's valid to say that sometimes, so I'm still going to say it. But if we overplay that card, what we're in danger of is grounding the moral compass of our children in the words of us as parents rather than in the words of God. If you ground what you say to your children and what you want them to do and not do in your words and your authority, when you're not there, they're going to break the rules and they're going to go off and live their own life according to however they see fit. But if you say, because I told you so, and the reason why I'm telling you this is because God has said, well, now you're rooting, you're, you're rooting their morality in something that transcends you. It transcends your home. It transcends your little circle of authority that you have in their life for 18 years. 
Now that 22-year-old who goes off to college, if they go off to college and start living rampantly in sin, the, the bug that's going to be in the back of their brain and their conscience isn't going to be, oh, I wonder what my mom and dad is going to think. But it's going to be like, I know that I'm sinning against God and His commands and His authority. If either our positive or our corrective discipline is grounded on our authority alone, we will stand in the same place as the religious authorities that we read about today. But parents aren't the only ones that need to be careful here. We all do. And it's not just the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When, when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he quotes from Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus. Now he says Isaiah was prophesying about, about them, but he was also speaking into a context in his own day, which shows that people were doing these sorts of things that we read about hundreds of years before Pharisees ever came onto the scene. And people are still doing this today. People are still building fences around God's law. People are still being legalists. They're still worshiping God with their mouths only, but their hearts being far from Him. They're still inventing rules that God has never given people. We are still putting burdens on people's backs that God has never commanded to be given. And so since Jesus was kind enough to give a real-life example of what this looks like, I want us to spend the rest of our time together thinking about examples of what this looks like. The first example and the easiest example has got to be the way that Christians think about alcohol. Now, on the one hand, what I'm about to say could really upset some people who are legalistic. On the other hand, it may give some people who are antinomian, which means you kind of don't think you have to obey the rules. It could make you feel really good about yourself. But the truth of God's word confronts both sides, the people who have too many rules and the people who think that there are no rules. The Bible does not say that drinking alcohol is a sin. As a matter of fact, in several places, the Bible calls wine a gift. In the same wine that Paul tells Timothy to drink for his stomach, he also says, when you come together, be careful with this wine so you don't get drunk when you celebrate the Lord's Supper. So it is a wine that has alcohol in it. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that wine has been given to man by God so that their hearts may be filled with gladness. But, says the brother who's very concerned with holiness, drunkenness is a sin. And he's right. Drunkenness is a sin. To quote the Apostle Paul, envy, drunkenness, orgies. I warn you, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So here is Paul the Apostle saying, drunkenness will keep you out of heaven. So maybe... The brother concerned with holiness says, I don't even want to play with the fires of drunkenness and end up in the furnace of hell. Such a position is perfectly acceptable for any one particular Christian to hold. Some brothers and sisters may be wise for holding this position, not wanting to even come anywhere near drunkenness because of their past history of sins and, uh, along those lines. Maybe even he'll share what he believes to be wise with other younger Christians as the occasion acquires, if it comes up in conversation. Maybe he'll just kind of share his perspective. But he won't bind anyone's conscience over the matter. But what happens all too often, and perhaps you've experienced the same thing, is that the brother who's genuinely concerned with holiness will try to make his fence your fence. So his fence is, I don't even want to come near drunkenness, so I'm not going to drink alcohol. And he'll say, 
And if you were wise, you would do the same thing too. If you were godly, you would do the same thing too. If you were holy, you would do the same thing too. Rather than living in peace with himself and his decision, he tries to make his wisdom your law. Hey, sister. I saw you uh, having a glass of wine the other night. Did you know that drunkenness is a sin? Well, yes, brother, I did, but I'm not getting drunk. But why would you even want to play with fire? Would a real Christian ever even risk coming that close to sin? Would a real Christian want to stay as far away from sin as possible? And with many such remarks as these, the brother has committed a terrible sin of binding his brother's conscience or his sister's conscience. He has said, in effect, God's word says, when God's word has not really said. Well, Sean, someone might say, we can't fault the brother for being concerned with holiness. And you're right. We can't fault the brother for being concerned with holiness. As a matter of fact, my prayer is often that every single member of this church would fight for holiness in every area of their lives, that God's holiness would be reflected in their lives through their finances and through their entertainment choices and through their sexual preferences and through the way that they work and the way that they think and that all things would be subject to the holiness of Jesus Christ in their lives. But a concern for holiness and good intentions does not mean that what you're doing is not sin. Your concern with holiness can lead you to put a burden on someone that God calls sin. This sort of behavior is one of the reasons why the world looks at the Christian church and thinks Christians only care about rule following and rule breaking. Guys, God has already given us enough commands. He doesn't need you to add to the list of commands. His law is the fence. He doesn't need you to build a fence around his fence. He's told us what is sin and what is not sin. He doesn't need you to make the list any longer. The list is long enough. The Lord has given us his word. He doesn't need your word to protect his word. He doesn't need your word to reinforce his word. <coughs> Some churches require that members abstain from drinking alcohol before you can join their church. And they require you to abstain from drinking alcohol to be a member of their church. That is a sin. It is a sin. It is in spirit the same sort of thing that Jesus is rebuking here today in the text. It's exalting your preferences up to the level of God's law. Joining and being a member of a covenanted community of believers is a clear command of God from Scripture. Drinking alcohol is something that God has left up to the freedom of our consciences. So to put the freedom of your conscience and the decision you've rendered on that over and above God's clear command to join the church is sin. And now you are requiring that other people sin in the same way and you bind their conscience. How dare any church prevent obedience to God in one area by requiring obedience to their own preferences in another area? If you think that it's unwise to drink because it could lead to the sin of drunkenness, good, don't drink. Do not do it. Don't go within a thousand feet of it. But don't bind the consciences of others with offenses that you build in your own life with your own holiness. If you do, you're going to be acting just like the religious leaders do in today's text. And it should be mentioned, brothers and sisters, that you don't actually have to say anything to someone to bind their conscience. 
You know what I'm talking about. It could just be a little snarky little comment. It could be a little joke. It could be a sideways glance. Maybe you see someone out having a beer with their coworker after work. For all you know, they could be sharing the gospel with their coworker. But you see them out having a beer, and you say, hey. And the look says it all. The tone in your voice says it all. You may not have explicitly condemned them, but your tone certainly has. We all know that tones and gestures and body language and glances can oftentimes say more than our words ever could. At least if you've been married, you think that. Another way that we can put our traditions above the Word of God is through denominationalism. There's a difference between the word denomination and the word denominationalism. I think denominations are good. If you've been a member of this church, you've heard me say that a hundred times. I think that they're good in this fallen world where Christians disagree on how to interpret Scripture on issues that are secondarily important. I'm glad that the brother can go gather with his church over there and I can gather with my church over here and we can live together as Christians according to our consciences. And then hopefully we talk and communicate and co-labor for the sake of the gospel, even if we have to do it like across the street from one another. But denominationalism is something else entirely. Denominationalism is when we hold our denomination's own interpretations of Scripture up to the level of God's Word. And we basically equate our interpretation of Scripture with the very plain truth of God's Word itself. Here's an example of that. Well, in the Church of God, or in the Church of Christ, well, in the Southern Baptist Convention, or in the PCA, or Reformed churches, that sort of thing. I remember a time when I was involved in a theological debate with a person that I thought had a particularly bad argument for his side of things. And so I responded to him by quoting scripture. Now, I didn't say, thus saith the Lord, and I didn't give any chapter or verse numbers, but it was a scripture that I had memorized, and it was a verbatim quote of scripture. And his response to me, I don't care about that because what we do in the Southern Baptist Convention is that's denominationalism. That's setting your denomination's interpretation of Scripture up to the level of God's Word. Denominations can be good and useful. Many denominations have standards of practice and traditions that are very helpful. But the danger that almost every single denomination falls into is that of placing its traditions on par with Scripture, as if the two were equal in God's mind. Let me say that one more time. The danger that every denomination falls into is that of placing its traditions on par with Scripture, as if the two were equal in God's mind. In this church, we can also run that same risk. We have a statement of faith, and I'm very thankful for it. But if we're not careful, our statement of faith can become a replacement for Scripture. We talked about that in Sunday school when we talked about what are the dangers of having a statement of faith. I love it and I want us to use it, but our statement of faith needs to be a subordinate tool to the Word of God, not a replacement for the Word of God itself. Another way that this sort of attitude can creep into the life of the church is when we have figureheads from our own little traditions and we use them to try to win arguments with people. So if you're having an argument and you say, yeah, well, John Calvin says, well, John Wesley says, well, D.S. Warner says, or if you're in the Nine Marks camp, Mark Dever says, if you're young and 20-something and cool and hip but also into theology, well, John Piper says,
if you're into economics, you might do it with Thomas Sowell. If you're a libertarian, you might do it with your, whoever's popular in libertarianism right now. And there's nothing wrong with quoting people who have done a good job thinking well about things. I quote people often from this pulpit, and I'll continue to do so. But we need to be careful to not quote people in such a way that sounds like we're saying, thus saith the Lord. As if a quote from C.S. Lewis ends the argument. Or a quote from John Wesley ends the argument. John Piper gets things wrong. Mark Dever gets things wrong. C.S. Lewis, John Calvin, John Wesley, D.S. Warner, all of the Puritans, Augustine, Irenaeus, everyone got things wrong. So we have to be very careful not to quote someone in such a way that makes it sound like they're infallible. Only God's word is infallible. And if we quote someone in order to elucidate a point or in order to have persuasive power in an argument that we're making, we should try to articulate the truth of their arguments with more emphasis rather than the weight of their name. The same sort of thing can grow up in the life of this church when people start saying things like, well, Pastor Sean says. By God's grace, I don't think anyone's said that. Maybe, maybe I need to try harder. But nobody I've heard says that, but it can be dangerous. Listen, if I, I love the fact that you come and hear me preach and that you listen while I teach and that you think my arguments are biblical and persuasive and accurate. But please don't ever quote me as if I'm the final word on a matter. If you quote me, make sure you quote me in a way that shows that you think my opinion on a matter is merely an echo of God's word, not a replacement for it or an equal to it. So we can go on and on and on and on listing examples of ways that we can put our own opinions, our own ideas, our own traditions over and above God's word. But I think we get the picture now. What I would like to do is to talk about traditions that we should embrace. Traditions that God himself has given us that we should embrace. Because these traditions highlight God's word, they exalt God's word, and they keep God's word central. And the first one is the tradition of the Lord's Supper and baptism. The two ordinances, one, two ordinances that the Lord has given his church. In baptism, we stand up and we tell the world, I belong to Jesus Christ. We tell the church, I belong to this body. And we tell Jesus Christ, Lord, I belong to you. I've been buried with you. I've been raised with you. When we get baptized, we're preaching a sermon. And the Lord's Supper is when we come into the church, we break bread and we drink wine and we celebrate the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us. And we preach the gospel to one another and to the world until Jesus comes back. That is a tradition that we celebrate that honors and highlights and exalts God's word rather than distracting from it or undermining it. Another tradition that the Lord has built into the church is the Great Commission. The tradition is, if you get the gospel, you turn around and give the gospel to someone else. I've been really, really, really encouraged by Amber Climbing lately. I mean, it seems like once a week she's coming home and she's telling me that she shared the gospel with someone. I got a chance to share the gospel with someone today at work. I'm trying to figure out how to share the gospel over here. It's just very encouraging. And it's very natural. That's what we do as Christians. You get the gospel, you get saved. The best thing in the world that could ever happen to a human soul happens to you, and you're not stingy with it. You turn around and you give it to someone else. If you've never been discipled, I'm sorry, but I want that to change. In the life of this church, I want us to be people who are discipling and who are being discipled.
Because when we are evangelized with a word-centered evangelism, God's word is exalted. And when we grow in Christ with word-centered discipleship, God's word is exalted over and above our own traditions and ideas and opinions. Another tradition that the Lord has built into the life of this church and every church is the regular gathering together of believers. Christians have been gathering together on Sundays to worship God and edify each other for over 2,000 years. And when we gather together, we don't gather around man's opinions. We don't gather around politics. We don't gather around common interests. We gather around God, which is known through His Word. <clears throat> you may not like the style of the music, but you should know that this music is saturated with God's Word. You may not love the way that that brother read the prayer. Maybe it was a little too reedy. But he studied God's Word and then wrote his prayer so that he could pray God's Word back to him and back to his people. Maybe you think my sermons are a bit long and there's not enough clever illustrations. And I'll try to do better on that. But every single week, I labor in God's Word so that when you're gathering here, you're not just hearing my opinions. You're hearing what God has said. Because that's the only thing that can change us. It's the only thing that can fix us. It's the only thing that can build us. It's the only thing that can save us. And if I ever, or Grant, or Michael Watt, ever start using their platform and their position of authority in the life of this church to advocate for their own traditions and their own opinions, as if they are God's word, you need to fire us. You need to send me packing. You need to remove them from being elders. Because the role of a shepherd is not to lead people along the paths of their own opinions, but to lead people along the paths of righteousness, along the path of God's word. Finally, brothers and sisters, let's follow in the footsteps of the Bereans. If you still have your Bibles open, let's turn to Acts chapter 17 starting in verses 11. Starting in verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So Paul has been going around preaching the gospel, particularly in Jewish synagogues when he first arrives at a city. And when he went to Thessalonica, he preached the gospel in the synagogue there, and he was run out of town. But when he got to Berea... He found Jews that were more noble, more honorable. And what was it that made them more noble and more honorable? Well, they actually considered what he had to say and checked it against what Scripture said. They would listen to Paul say something about the Christ, and then they would flip through the pages in their Bible, and they would try to see if it lined up. And if it did, they would say, keep going. And for several days, Paul taught them from the Scriptures, and the Bereans checked what he was saying from the Scriptures. And that's what we need to be in the life of this church. We need to be Bereans. We need to take everything that is taught in this church, and even all the traditions that we hold to that maybe we don't even realize, and we need to compare them to God's Word. And if it lines up with God's Word, we need to cling fast to it and hang on to it. And if it doesn't, we need to reject it outright. As parents, we need to examine our traditions and hold them up to the light of God's Word. 
As students, we need to look at our practices and see if they line up with God's word. As members of this church, let's consider what we do and why we do it and ask ourselves if what we do lines up with what God has revealed to us in his word. And let's be wise about the way we do this. Let's be humble in the way that we do this. You can be a Berean in a way that's not very Berean-like. You can use the Bible as a weapon. Have your clips loaded with your special little verses that you like to shoot people with whenever a theological controversy arises. We should be wise and humble in considering what other smarter people have said about certain things. There are some people who have spent 20 years studying a certain subject. You've probably read a Facebook post about it. Maybe that person who spent 20 years thinking about this subject has a little bit more to say about it than you who's invested a nickel's worth of thought. The Marian mentality, the Berean mentality, is what led Martin Luther to begin to question some of the abuses that he saw in the Roman Catholic Church. He looked at the traditions and the practices of the church, and then he looked at God's word, and he made a decision to stand with God and God's word. As time moved on, Luther began to see that indulgence preachers like John Tetzel were just the tip of the iceberg. He began to see that the entirety of the Roman Catholic Church was one big, massive dunghill of human tradition. By the end of his life, Martin Luther rejected papal authority. He rejected the office of the Pope entirely. He rejected many of the core doctrines like Mariology, a wrong understanding of justification, so on, of the Catholic Church. The main contribution that Martin Luther gave to us, even today, that we are still benefiting from, is the rediscovery of the gospel of justification by faith alone. In the Roman Catholic Church, the gospel was faith plus. Faith plus works, faith plus good deeds, faith plus penance, faith plus this, faith plus that, faith plus purgatory. And Martin Luther rediscovered justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and under the authority of Scripture alone. But it's not just Martin Luther's gospel. He didn't invent this gospel. Jude 3 talks about the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And Martin Luther simply rediscovered this faith, this faith that had been lost for a time. And this gospel is not just Luther's gospel. It's not Zwingli's gospel. It's not Spurgeon's gospel or Augustine's gospel or Wesley's gospel or Calvin's gospel or Athanasius's gospel or even just the Apostle Paul's gospel. This is the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe this gospel? This is the gospel that says that you cannot be saved by your own ideas, by your own authorities, by your own traditions, by your own works. What are you trusting in for salvation? We're all trusting in something. Some of us are trusting in what our mama told us. Some of us are trusting in what the church tells us. Our own traditions, our own denominations are telling us. Some of us, some of us are trusting in what the heroes teach us your own particular hero of your faith. Some of us are trusting in our own flawed interpretation of Scripture. Some of us are trusting in our own reason to save us. Some of us are trusting in what the culture is telling us, even if God's Word is telling us something different. 
Let me close by telling you what God tells you that you should trust in for your salvation. God made everything good, but sin entered into the world and death along with it. As a result of this fall into sin, everything is corrupted, even you and me. Every single person naturally rejects God, despises God, is under the wrath of God for their sins, and is blind to the things of God as they walk around in their sin. Such people, including you and I, before Christ saved us, are walking down the road to destruction. And what awaits them there is nothing less than the wrath of God Himself. But God, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we hated Him, even when we were blind to Him, even when we were exchanging His righteousness for our sin, when we exchanged His glory for images made by man, even when we were running from Him, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from the fall. He didn't leave us to try and figure out things for ourselves, to try to fix our own sin problems, to try to resolve our own unrighteousness, but rather He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, and His Son laid down His life as a payment for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. Black and white, young and old, rich and poor, smart and dumb, handsome and homely, Jew and Gentile alike. He is calling all people everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn from their own ways and to turn from their own ideas and to turn from their own traditions and their own way of approaching Him. He's calling them to turn to His Son, Jesus Christ. The way that He has provided for us to get back home to Him again. He's calling us to turn from our own rules and regulations and to turn to the one who has already perfectly obeyed all of God's rules and regulations. He's calling us to access that righteousness through faith and repentance. So will you turn to Him? Will you trust Him? But Sean, how can I know Him? Well, He's already revealed Himself to you in His Word. So seek Him there, and I promise He will reveal Himself to you. Let's pray. On our best days, Father, we fail to love Your Word as we are. On our worst days, we trust in ourselves, in our own ideas, in our own traditions, in our own principles, in our own reason for salvation, more than we trust in what You have revealed to us in Your Word. We repent of that as a church, Father. And we ask that you would help us to do better in the future so that your name might be glorified and so that this church might be healthy and vibrant, projecting your glory out into the world. We ask this in your son's name.